Well, it is a real privilege, um, and I'm very excited to be here. I, I don't know if I should confess that this is my very first time in this building. Um, and so I'm a bit overawed at the moment as I, I came in and thought of the history. Uh, Martin was filling me in earlier on some of that, and I'm going to have a tour of the building afterwards, and I'm um, really looking forward to that. So thank you very much for inviting me. Um, I, I, I can confess this here, I'm amongst friends, I'm a Church of England priest, um, and I hope you're not going to hold that against me. Um, but my own story is one that has Methodism woven within it. So as a 15-year-old uh, young woman, I started attending church at a Methodist chapel in Bolsover in Derbyshire. Um, and uh, although in my early 20s I went on to join the Church of England, uh, part of my heart was and still is with those people that I met at that chapel who taught me and showed me how to see the love of God in the face of Jesus Christ and to know that for myself. And to them I still owe a huge debt of gratitude. It seems, therefore, really right and fitting that for the last five years, I have been a tutor at Queen's Foundation in Birmingham. So those of you who are cricket lovers, I'm quite close to Edgebaston uh, cricket ground. I went, thank you. Uh, I went to my very first cricket match, uh, which was a 2020. Oh, it was very noisy. I, oh, I didn't know if I liked that at all. So instead of that, I went to Bourneville and, and saw a, a village cricket match and really enjoyed that, especially because they also shared their sandwiches with me, which was even more. Um, and so I'm at Queen's where we train Anglican and Methodists together for ordained ministry, and that seems to me to be a glimpse of the kingdom. Uh, we are also a centre for black theology, and so we've just launched a master's in that. And we train people who are looking for ministry, lay and ordained within black majority churches. So it is a really both exciting and sometimes rather chaotic place to worship and to be a part of the community. I think one of the distinctives of Queen's for me is that we are looking to work with both the ways in which we as Anglicans and Methodists are different, but also similar. And I want to say that, um, not simply by way of introduction, but because I want to come back to it a little bit at the end of the sermon. So let's turn our eyes a bit onto those readings that we, we just heard. And we find ourselves joined together today in the second Sunday in Lent. This year, as has already been, this, this time of year has already been said in the service, when we try to set time aside to make space for God, to prepare ourselves for Holy Week and Easter. We prepare ourselves, don't we, again, to enter into the story and the journey of Jesus' final days on the earth. We know that ahead of us is the triumphant procession into Jerusalem, the agony of Gethsemane, the suffering of the cross, and the silence of grief that is Holy Saturday. We also know that on Easter Sunday, we will stand with Mary Magdalene outside Jesus' tomb to wait for the unimaginable. But all of that is to come. For now, we simply prepare ourselves 
to enter that story where we will walk alongside Christ and his followers. And it seems to me that when I read the gospel reading, that's too where Jesus was pointing us to. Those really um, chilling, foreboding, amazing words that Jesus speaks, which I'm sure must have a sermon within them of their own. Yet today and tomorrow and the next day, I must be on my way because it is impossible for a prophet to be killed outside of Jerusalem. Jesus has set his face like a flint, preparing himself for all that may lie ahead. And so what do we do in this time of preparation? Well, I wonder how many of you have Lenten practices. It's not as, um, as popular these days, uh, but maybe you have gone to give up the chocolate biscuits and maybe that's not lasted very long. Um, Maybe that you have decided to fast from television or social media. I did try for a little while. I'm afraid that has gone the way of all things. Um, But maybe you have decided to take something up, a charitable practice, or add in an extra time of silence or prayer into your day. Whatever it is, and it's still not too late to begin, whatever it is that we do, I think we are signaling to God, making an intentional commitment, if you like, that we want to, we desire to make space for God, for God to speak to us, that we may become more aware of the way that the prayer book speaks of the devices and desires of our own hearts. And that, I think, is where the psalm leads us. And it's actually the psalm I want us to explore in a bit more depth this morning. I think the psalmist declares God's providence and promise, but also says something of his own desires. Those beautiful words in verse four, one thing I asked of the Lord, that will I seek after, to live in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to behold the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. And when I got here this morning, I realized that the the translation that you use is different to the one that I was using. I think you're using TNIV. I tend to use the NRSV. And immediately after I've uh, spoken, we're going to be singing a song that resonates, that, that echoes those words, one thing I ask of the Lord. But I noticed that in your version, as I thought it was in all versions, it speaks in the present tense, one thing I ask from the Lord. Whereas the NRSV puts that in the past tense. One thing I asked of the Lord. So Tony very very helpfully ran off and looked at some Hebrew for me, like you do before a service, um, and checked. And we do, in fact, think it is a past tense. One thing I asked of the Lord. I want to say that 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 change, those words, I think might, and this is what I've been working with this week and praying with, I wondered whether they gave a different view, a different window into this psalm, opened up a different avenue of thought. And so I want to look at them for a while. You know, in some ways, those words make me feel quite uncomfortable. I read them and I feel suddenly quite guilty. I'm not sure that the one thing I seek 
is that all the days of my life I will live in the house of the Lord. It does sound like a never-ending church service, doesn't it? Are you with me here? Um, I'm sure all your services here are lovely and you never want them to end. Um, But obviously, you know, I speak as an Anglican. To behold the Lord's beauty, to inquire in his temple. But if you like, that's what Lent does to us, isn't it? it? It starts to strip us down and to ask questions of us. As we confront some of the ways that we spend our time, our money, our energy, and we try to set them aside for a while, we open up a space in us that allows our own deep desires to start to surface. And sometimes they can be a bit of a surprise, and sometimes they can make us feel quite uncomfortable. Now, I think there's a whole sermon I could preach on that and we could discuss together, except I began to wonder whether that wasn't what the psalm was about at all. It seems to me that the psalmist puts forward this amazing vision, living in the house of the Lord all our days, spending time simply gazing on the Lord and inquiring in his temple. Prayer, worship, asking of God on behalf of ourselves and our friends and family and our world. This is what he prayed for. And it would seem, wouldn't it, that that is the pinnacle of prayer, to tell God that all we want is God for God's self. All we want is to spend our lives worshipping God and in prayer. But when I read the psalm again, I began to wonder whether the psalmist had a bit of a problem. The psalm opens with this idea of the Lord as his light and salvation, and then immediately says, whom shall I fear? There's a hint, I think, that all is not well. The psalmist then speaks of the Lord as his stronghold, and then immediately asks, so of whom shall I be afraid? He talks about evildoers assailing him to devour him. This is really strong language, really strong imagery. He has enemies and foes, and then he prays that they will stumble and fall, a very human cry. In fact, I think, he feels utterly besieged. This is a man who is overwhelmed by what is happening to him in his life. It is, he says, as if an an army is encamped around him. A war has risen up against him. And he is trying in the midst of this difficulty and darkness to find confidence in the God he has prayed to. I wonder whether there's anything in that that resonates with you. It seems to me then that after those first few verses, it's only then that he speaks one thing I asked of the Lord. And it then reads a bit like a complaint. I asked one thing of you, God, one thing. And that desire was surely a pure one, one I could really have confidence in. I knew that I was praying something that you were bound to say yes to. I told you that all I wanted was to live in your house. I wanted a prayer-filled, worshipful life, but that isn't what I got. What I actually got 
was the day of trouble. In fact, it's so bad, he says, I'm wondering whether you have hidden from me. It's so bad that I think you may have turned away from me in anger. You have cast me off. You have forsaken me. I don't think he can quite believe what's happening. If my father and mother forsake me, the Lord will take me up. He's going right down into himself. He recites the difficulties of his life and then each time he reminds himself of the truth of God's goodness, God's strength, the God who will always turn up in the end. But sisters and brothers, I think he is bewildered. Has his prayer failed? I asked for this, this is what I got. And yet I began to wonder. And I asked myself those questions. What does it mean to live in the house of the Lord? What does it mean to seek after that? What does it mean to behold the beauty of God and to inquire in his temple? Could it be, could it possibly be that the psalmist is actually having his heart's desire granted to him rather than the hijacking of his prayer. When we dare to take those steps to offer our lives to the God who has given all for us, when we ask God to grant us glimpses of divine beauty and God's presence amongst us, maybe that does not lead us into idyllic places, but difficult ones. Places of loss and grief, as we face up to our own weaknesses, our sins and fragility, but also as we come up against the brokenness and injustice in the world around us. It is, I think, when we seek to face up to our, both our own inner chaos, often covered up by all the extraneous things of life, and also when we seek to speak words of challenge, love and mercy in some of the complex situations in our world, it's then that we come up against resistance. So much so that we can often think we are on the wrong path. We can think that this isn't a place where God is or we think that God has abandoned us when actually we are exactly where God has led us to be. It's as if God says, you asked to be with me. You asked to be where I am. You asked to see my face. Well, it's here. Maybe in the words of another psalm, God has actually made God's hiding place in the darkness. Maybe this is where we are led to. The story of Jesus' life, I want to suggest, says something very similar. A desire to live for God may not always lead us to quiet streams, but to place where seeking, speaking love to ourselves and in the presence of others leads to confrontation and suffering. And we know that this suffering is not the last word, but neither can it be bypassed. 
And quite oddly now, as the sermon draws to a close, I want to just come back to that relationship between us as Anglicans and Methodists. I believe that together we have dared to pray a prayer. We have dared to echo Jesus' prayer that we may be one. It has led us into some great times where we have rejoiced to be together in new ways. But it has also and continues to lead us into some very difficult situations where we have often hurt each other. There's a report at the moment called Ministry and Mission in Covenant that sits in both our churches that is looking at this crucial time of whether there's a way in which we can be more fully together, where we can worship more fully together, where we can share ministry more together. It has brought to the surface both within our denominations and between the denominations some very difficult and painful questions and issues. Pray for those who are thinking them through. It can make us think that this is so difficult that perhaps our prayer for unity is not something that God is blessing. But I want to suggest, to hope, that those signs of difficulty and pain may not actually mean that we are in the wrong place at the wrong time, but in the right place at the right time. I don't know where this will go between our churches, but I would want to say that as we journey through Lent, we should encourage each other to dare to wait for the Spirit, to dare for what, to wait for the Spirit to move amongst us in ways that we cannot imagine, as Mary Magdalene did on that Easter Sunday, and ways that will eventually bring us to life. But in the meantime, we may want to say those words of the psalmist to each other. I believe that I shall see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. Amen.